This is the Monday, February 26, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine travels back to 1960 and pulls over to Lonely Bridge on a Colorado road. We're here to witness a crime of greed and envy when a murderer who escaped from prison, who boasts of genius IQ, snatches the 44-year-old CEO of Coors as he makes his way to the family brewery. We follow this trail of true crime in the new book, Death of an Heir, Adolf Kors III and the Murder That Rocked an American Brewing Dynasty. Sitting beside us as the kidnapper pounces is Philip Jett, who brings us this chilling account of the Kors family's American dream turned into a nightmare. Philip Jett is a former corporate attorney now living in Nashville. He has ghostwritten for business clients, contributed articles to a city paper, and focused on writing narrative nonfiction for publication. You can find him online at philipjet.com or at philipjet on Twitter. That's Philip with one L and Jet with two T's. Okay, now that we've arrived back in 1960 on that rainy spring day, let's join Philip Jet and witness Death of an Heir. I'm joined via Skype by Philip Jett, who brings us Death of an Heir, Adolf Kors III and the murder that rocked an American brewing dynasty. Thank you so much for making time to chat with the History Author Show. Thank you, Dean. It's a pleasure to be here. Philip, Death of an Heir drew me in right from the first lines of the book. I often will ferry a book in my bag home from the office on the subway, and if I don't have anything to read or I can't get cell service, I'll say, let me flip through this one. Death of an Heir really caught my attention, held it. I found myself then at home reading it at night. The setup of the book reminded me of Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. Adolf Kors III called Ad for short – is a similar guy. He's likable, he's hardworking, he's modest, he's spending time at home with his family, and the whole time as the reader, you know that this shark, like in Jaws, is lurking there under the water, this snake in the grass just waiting to pounce on him through no fault of his own. Even though all of the workers like him, he always had a smile for you, his secretary says. So I wondered if that was the kind of quality in a man, in this man in particular, Ad Kors, that drew you to his disappearance. It sparks the largest manhunt since the search for the Lindbergh baby. What was your first door into this story? Well, first, Dean, thanks for the compliment. And Cold Blood is one of my favorite books, and I like the comparison. But what drew me to the book was 
by accident, actually, like a lot of things happen in life. I was out in Golden, Colorado, totally unrelated to this book, and I was touring the brewery there. And I don't know if you've ever been out there, but you take a tour of the brewery, and when you near the end, you get a free beer, and they send you on your way. Well, I was when I was exiting down the hallway, they have all these photos of Coors Pass. And so I was checking out the family and everything, and I noticed the grandfather, the father, the three sons. And then as I moved along, I noticed one son disappeared. So I thought, okay, what happened? And so when I returned to the hotel, I looked up the Coors family and saw his story. And that was not a story I was familiar with. And the more I read, the more it intrigued me. You're right. He was a good man. And something tragic happened to him and his family. And so I thought that would be a good story to write about. Well, it was definitely a good story. I enjoyed it as if almost it was a novel, as if it was a thriller. But <laughs> uh, these are real people. Ad Kors and his family are, are very real, very relatable, despite the great wealth. One reason the tension is high is that we do know Adcor's fate right there in the title, Death of an Heir. I wondered how you chose the title and if you ever considered not giving away his ultimate fate for people that were like you and you were on that tour out there that didn't know what his fate was. Did you ever consider uh, using something else and maybe leading people up to the fact that he'd been kidnapped and leaving us all there maybe with his family and the police that don't know his ultimate fate? Right. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you asked because, in fact, I did. And in fact, the first draft of the book was more of a mystery. I wrote the book initially with three potential kidnappers. And the working title of the book just used the word kidnapping and not murder. In fact, it was interesting. I used, as I say, three potential kidnappers. And I tried something I thought was interesting, which was I had the real kidnapper as one of the suspects, and I also had his alias as another suspect, and then someone in the union. So the reader did not know the difference between Joe Corbett, who's the kidnapper, and his alias, Walter Osborne, and then the union person. But as all projects go, once I hooked up with an agent and publisher they felt that the mystery part of the book was mixing genres, and they preferred just sticking to true crime. So I deleted the other potential suspects, went straight with Joe Corbett, cut out the mystery, and then they uh, worked with me on the title, and they wanted murder. And I was reticent to go with that. I still liked the mystery part of it, and they asked me to write a prologue. And the prologue they wanted me to write was just a summary of the entire book from start to finish. Well, that I pushed back on. And I'm like, you know, I really don't want to tell the entire story in three pages at the beginning of the book. And so, as you'll see, the prologue leads up to the bridge and the disappearance and then stops and you have to pick up. But I think the book turned out very well. And it's funny because... I gave the book early on to a test group of 25 people. And when I got their comments, one of my questions had been just what you asked. And several of the people told me that they had Googled the story before they read the book. Hmm. So they knew he was murdered and who murdered him. And so even if I had written it as a mystery, 
a lot of people, I guess, would have checked out the story online and it wouldn't have been much of a mystery. In 2017, writing a mystery book about something true would be tough, although you are able to hold back enough of the details that there is still the big question of just what happened and how. So I didn't feel as if, oh, I already know the end. You want to know the how and you want to know about him and you want to, even when you have somebody that dies, you want to know how they passed away. You want to certainly find the body and that kind of thing. So in fiction too, you sometimes you start right away with a dead body and then you go through the whole thing trying to figure out what happened to this person that you found. Well, that's how I set up the book. The book is in three sections. Uh, it deals with the plan and the disappearance and the capture and the trial. In the first section with the plan, I, I was setting up uh, the kidnapping, and that section of the book ends with the kidnapper and Ad Coors meeting on the bridge. And you don't know what happens and you go to the second section of the book and it picks up with his disappearance and how his family and the company are dealing with it and the investigation and and to learn what happens you have to follow the investigation so yeah there is some suspense there is still mystery in the book uh, about how it was done and how uh, law enforcement tracked this man down you know across the continent Death of an Heir also introduces us to that kidnapper, Joseph Corbett Jr. When we meet him, he's a fugitive. He's escaped prison where he's serving a term for murder. He's also a typical loner. And when I read that word loner, I felt for you as a researcher and as an author, because how do you get inside the head of someone who keeps to himself and doesn't have a lot of close friends, much less family for you to go and interview, especially 60 years later? Yeah, that's always tough, but I'll tell you, Dean, his head was a scary place to put myself in. Hmm. But, you know, I have still boxes of information. I probably have uh, over a thousand pages of FBI material, 2,000 pages of trial information. I have, you know, a couple thousand more pages of prison records and psychiatrist notes and newspaper clippings from when he was young and he committed a crime earlier which was in the newspapers. And like all murders, they go back and they find neighbors and school friends and people that worked with him, and they all give their opinion. So after you can condense all that and extrapolate, you're able to come up with a pretty good picture of who he was and how he thought. And even though he didn't talk about the Coors crime, he did talk about other things to the FBI and to the local authorities. And so you were able to see, you know, that this guy was a smart guy, but he was lacking emotion. And in fact, that's what one of the uh, defense attorneys that I interviewed told me, that when you looked in his eyes, he just had dead eyes, kind of like the shark and jaws that you just mentioned, that he had dead eyes and just seemed like a cold-blooded individual. And the family is somewhat the reverse of that as far as the reticence goes. They don't talk a lot about it at the time. You mentioned in the book that there's no statue to add cores outside, no memorial garden, nothing like that. They're just very stoic and they keep to themselves. So that, that was another part of the challenge. And yet you were able to really infuse the book with a lot of details and, and give us a lot of feeling. And I didn't feel that you 
pass that frustration that you might have felt while you're researching on to me as a reader. And I thought that was a special talent. I don't think I've come across before another book that paints such a vivid picture and mentions in passing some of those things about how this person is a loner, he's reticent, he doesn't talk much, the family doesn't sit around writing poetry or giving big speeches, his ultimately widow Mary, she's not out there begging for him to come back. And I thought that was something unique for a writer, especially since you tend to be expressive and tell people what you're thinking. You didn't pass that reticence or that frustration about the reticence onto us as readers. You managed to pack it and, and work your way around that. Uh, how did you meet that challenge? Oh. Thank you for saying that. I mean, it, it was a challenge, but I certainly did not want to pass my burden on to the reader. As I say, I was lucky that when I wrote this book, there were still several individuals living who knew the family, who had worked with uh, Ad Coors, and, you know, for instance, the estate attorney who handled Ed's estate and knew his wife very well. I had dinner with them. I met with prosecutors, and they gave me a really good insight into the family. You know, I just did my research, and I was able to learn a lot about the Coors family. They're a very private uh, family, and they still are. They've gotten a lot of unflattering press through the years, and that's made them withdraw a little bit from interviews and, and that sort of thing. But at the same time, they have a magnificent company and they've taken a lot of interviews about their company and their family traditions and their heritage. And you can glean a lot from that type of information and their personalities. And so I just use that in the book. This is Adolf Kors Third, Ad, the man that's the murdered heir here. His father, Adolf Kors Jr., he's that very collected, cool, quiet customer and somebody whose head would be hard to get inside. There probably wouldn't be a lot of noise in there. He insists on treating the kidnapping as a business transaction. That's his actual phrase for it. Okay. They have something that I want and just name a price and we'll, we'll get this done when they're thinking it's a ransom situation. And he's informed of his son's death by a reporter who calls him for a comment. And he says simply, that's news to me. So that's demonstrative of that throughout this. And I wanted to give you a chance to mention him, maybe contrast him with his son a little bit and the, the rest of the family. What kind of businessman and father was the Elder Coors? Well, the Elder Coors was the son of the founders, and he was the eldest son, and he was all business. I guess you could say cold-hearted, but I think he was a good father, but he was just an old-school type of individual, and he believed in hard work and that his kids had to make their own way, except they had to make their own way within the family business. He did not want them working outside of the family business. They were all very well educated, went to Princeton, went to Cornell. They were engineers, chemical engineers. They could have worked for a lot of other companies, but he required that they come back home. And the fact that they all did tells you a little bit about his influence. There's a quote in the book, from Bill Coors, the brother of Ad, who was murdered, that his father believed if he showed affection to his children, it would spoil them. So that gives you some insight into his view of being a father and rearing children. He was pretty tough, but, you know, I think the family 
was a loving family. It was just kind of old school tradition. And it's the German influence maybe too to parenting. I'm looking at, I have in front of me a bookcase and it has most of the books that I've done author interviews on here. And one of them is Deep Undercover by Jack Barsky, who came to the U.S. as a KGB agent undercover in the 80s. And he talks about his upbringing in the really tough world that was Germany, especially after World War II, which is his time. And he talked about his mother in that way, his parents, and about that getting him to be tough. He breaks, I believe it's his leg at one point, and they say, well, you're still, you're going to the hospital, but go ahead, walk to the hospital. Ah. And I mean, they're that, they're tough, and that's just the way that they raised him. It's not, it's things we would think of as cruelty today. And in fact, he has another story. He's maybe five, and she bends down to give him a kiss and he says oh, I'm, I'm a big boy now uh, mom I don't need any more kisses from you uh, and he was kidding and he says but she took it seriously and then that was it that was the last time that she gave him gave him a kiss and he said he, here of course he's hungering for his mother's affection he's he's only five and he's made what to him is just a little joke and it's not as if he yells at her or does anything like that but they knew you needed to be tough in the world and I saw that German upbringing here reflected a little bit in the legacy that comes down to the cores where they're just going to be stoic and accept these things as they come. And for you to build a story around that would have been tough. And by the same token, it makes his widow, ultimately Mary, more sympathetic because she comes from the outside. And I thought it must be very tough to come into such a powerful family that's so intricately woven, so tight, and then to face this tragedy. And suddenly she's there almost alone in this strange land without her beloved husband, who's soft and loving, and he's a favorite of the people at work there at cores. That was really hard for her, made her very sympathetic. You, and it draws you into your story in Death of an Heir all that much more because you see her and you, you want to kind of put your arm around the woman and say it's going to be okay, even though you know it won't be. Yeah, that's a good point. She and Mr. Coors, her husband's father, did not get along that well. She came from a very good family there in Colorado as well. Her grandfather had been the third governor of the state, and so she had her own pedigree. But she was dealing with, I think, being an intelligent woman who traveled the world and then dealing with a father-in-law who was set in his ways, old school, women needed to know their place type of thing. And so when she lost her husband, she really lost her life preserver with the family. They pretty much cut her off. You know, they were still nice and that sort of thing. But she was now an outsider. Her husband was gone, and that was her only connection to the Coors. And that trickled down to her children, I think, as uh, I said in the book. It's a strange situation that Mr. Coors would treat his daughter-in-law and grandchildren differently after his son was deceased, but he did. Another thing that you mentioned that goes along with this idea of the reticence is that not only did they fear kidnappings, which seemed to make sense. We used to hear a lot about kidnappings for money in those days. There seems to be a lot less of them now. I can't remember the last high-profile one, like a Frank Sinatra Jr. or the Lindbergh Baby or anything like that, Patty Hearst. In Death of an Heir, you talk about the Coors family and, and a little bit about the business side of it. 
this reticence, part of it was extending to advertising, which seems incredible. I mentioned to you that on my train stop in Hoboken one day, I thought about getting some cores and, you know, just putting it next to the book. But I figured I would talk to you first and make sure that uh, that would be taken in the right uh-huh. spirit. And my thinking was because that silver can or the gold can, the silver can for cores light, it's so eye catching. And I offhandedly mentioned to you that they haven't spent you know, 70 years of advertising to make that such a vivid eye-drawing image without it catching people. And I thought it would draw people here to the cover of Death of an Air. And you mentioned something interesting about their advertising, and I wanted you to mention that here. Uh, yeah, that's um, an interesting point because folks nowadays, we're accustomed to seeing, you know, if you, you can't watch a football game or a sporting event without seeing Coors Beer or the Silver Bullet Coors Light, that sort of thing. It's great advertising they have going, but it wasn't always that way. In fact, Mr. Coors, their company had gone through, it was founded in 1873, and they had gone through prohibition in the early 1900s, which put a lot of beer companies out of business, and they never came back. But Coors was able to sustain themselves through making near beer, and they made porcelain. They they did anything they could do to keep their company alive, and they made it through. But Mr. Coors never forgot that, and he was always afraid that prohibition might come back. And so he wanted to keep a low profile for the company, and that included the Coors family not showing off their wealth and also in their advertisement. He didn't like the idea of advertising, particularly when it showed an individual drinking a beer, he thought that would anger some folks and they would come back and want prohibition reinstated. Hmm. It's amazing that they managed to stick around for so long. Those are the sorts of things where I say in history, you don't know what you're going to be doing that's going to be something that becomes historic. But Coors has become so much part of Colorado. Then it spreads, like for instance, at the time here of Death of an Air, they're not even in all 50 states. They're they're mostly in the West, right? So they, they haven't expanded everywhere. This Adolf Coors, he comes here from Germany, can have no idea that in 100 years, people are going to be drinking a beer with an anglicized version of his name on it. I respect what the Coors family has done with their company. It's one of those American rags to riches stories. He had nothing when he came here from Germany, and he started the company out in Colorado because of the water. He liked the, the fresh mountain water. Initially, they used the water just straight straight out of the mountain streams. And now, you know, Coors is a multi-billion dollar company. So they did very well. The FBI plays a role in the search for ad cores. You describe that in Death of an Heir and talk about rags to riches. Tell the story of how J. Edgar Hoover ends up on the case. <laughs> well, literally. Yeah, he does. He's hands on <laughs> where, you know, I don't think if I picked up the phone and called the FBI and said, I'd like to speak to the director, they would take my call. But uh, <laughs> Mr. Coors, he did just that. When his son went missing, he picked up the phone and called and wanted to speak to J. Edgar Hoover. And Mr. Hoover, knowing who Adolph Coors Jr. was, certainly took his call. And after speaking with him, not only did he send as many agents to Colorado as he could, he said that he would personally oversee the case, which he did. He had regular updates 
on what was going on in uh, the court's investigation, and he pressured the uh, special agent in charge in Denver. Even still, it took several months, almost in a year, before the case was solved, but it was not because the FBI was not throwing uh, all their resources behind the investigation. You're enjoying my chat with Philip Jett about his book, Death of an Heir, Adolf Kors III and the Murder That Rocked an American Brewing Dynasty. You can visit him online at philipjett.com or at philipjett on Twitter. That's Philip with one L and Jet with two T's. Booklist writes that Philip Jet quote, puts his legal experience to good use with behind-the-scenes insights into investigative legwork while crafting a suspenseful true crime narrative that reads like an edge-of-the-seat detective story. Let's focus on that legal experience that Booklist mentions because I could see that being a double-edged sword. The habits of a good lawyer, things like stark detail and recitation of facts, for example. For me, it was a science background. I remember when I was studying science, for instance, loving the English language and such, and you'd write those stark scientific reports and they would say, just strip out all the language strip out every piece of flowery anything and just make it very stark. Those talents are not the talents or habits of a good narrative nonfiction writer. So how did you ensure that Death of an Heir did have that human quality that we've given a bunch of examples of here? How did you make sure that it read as a book or a thriller almost and not just as a legal brief? <laughs> well, Dean, I can be OCD at times, for sure, when it comes to details and facts. But when I sat down to write this book, I recognized I had a choice. No offense to some of my colleagues, but I viewed my choice as I could write a thick, dry recitation of facts with footnotes and the whole bit, or I could write something factually accurate, but also enjoyable to read. And I believe that if I used narrative nonfiction to tell this story, more people would be exposed to the story and read it than if it were more of a uh, documentary on paper. But I must say, you know, narrative nonfiction, you know, I do borrow almost uh, fictional techniques to tell a nonfiction story, but the book is still very accurate. I like to give an example when people ask me about narrative nonfiction and my use in this book, I'm like, well, for instance, I sit down and I read an FBI report, and it tells me that two agents were on a bridge at this time of day, and this is the evidence they discovered. Well, I could recite that in a narrative, and it would be factually correct, but it wouldn't be that entertaining. So rather than doing that, I like as I did in course, I would set a scene. I would set two agents. I would describe them in their suits and their trench coats and standing on the bridge on a cold, windy day, having a dialogue. And in the dialogue, they describe the evidence they've discovered. Now, I wasn't there. I don't know what exactly they said, but I do know they were there. And this is the evidence they discovered. So for me... I was able to stick to the facts, but present it in a way that I thought was more entertaining to the reader. You mentioned that Ad Kors is one of three brothers. Bill and Joe are the other ones. 
They run the business closely. This family dynamic really is a unique one. They share an office together, for instance. They're left to deal with things like union troubles and hiring of employees after the murder. Even though Corbett here is not somebody who works at the brewery, they're still understandably very concerned and uh, I guess bordering on paranoid here about hiring somebody who might be a future kidnapper. What impact did the crime have on them and the people that work there at Coors or wanted to apply for a job there? It's uh, interesting. You know, I interviewed a person who was working there when the crime happened and he told me that it was a very sad time, but uh, the Coors brothers didn't talk about it. And there was no speeches given or anything like that. So as the days of the disappearance drew on, the workers just went on about their way. And for the Coors brothers, Bill and Joe, you know, as we've said before, they were private. They hid their feelings. They weren't going to discuss it, certainly with workers. But the event did have an impact. And, you know, I mentioned it in the book. Bill later made a statement that they did withdraw more from the public eye. They were more cautious and suspicious of um, anyone that they came in contact with. And, you know, I can understand that. You're a Coors and your brother is kidnapped and murdered for money. So they were a lot tougher on employees coming in, giving them even lie detector tests and that sort of thing, because even though the killer had not been an employee, they feared that an employee could be another killer. You know, let me just say here that uh, Bill Coors, the brother Bill, he's still alive. He's uh, 101 years old and still lives in Colorado. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, he's, uh, so I think, you know, we can say maybe that Coors beer, you know, is (laughs) a healthy, (laughs) a healthy choice. Yeah, maybe we'll see see him in an ad. It doesn't seem too likely. Wow, that's somebody who lived through Prohibition. He's had a long life, 101 years. Think about 1917 to 2017, how much has changed and happened. That's something. So maybe he gets the years that his brother was denied. Because Ad Kors here, what is he, 44, 45? Yeah, he's 44. You know, both of his brothers. I think Joe lived to be 85. His parents lived into their 80s. Uh, Bill's uh, 101, so there's certainly longevity in the family. So, again, Ad Coors was robbed of a long life in all probability. I mentioned his widow, Mary Coors, and how you really come to admire her from a distance because you can't really get inside her. You can't get close enough to put that arm around her because she does stay out of the public eye. But anybody can feel for this woman and not knowing what's happened to her husband, wanting him back alive and safe. You give one detail in Death of an Heir. When they discover the body, eventually she asks for Ad's remains so she can give him a funeral and put him to rest. She's told that they can't be released until there's a trial. So still, she's denied that closure. And I wonder, what do you hope readers take away from her unique nightmare, her part here of the life as the wife of the heir in Death of an Heir? She's waiting to learn her husband's fate. She's trying day after day to deal with this, waiting for a phone call and knock on the door. Just this lingering misery in her life. Even when they find the killer, Corbett, the man that they suspect of it, decide they're going to put on trial, she has to wait through them putting him on justice before she can even bury her husband. What's her example to readers? You know, D, 
Dean, when I first thought about how to approach this book, I had the facts and I had the story, history, but I wanted something more and I wanted to focus on something and I wanted the readers to feel what the Coors family went through. So I immediately focused on Ad Coors' wife, Mary, because she's an example of someone who stayed strong throughout this ordeal, but it's clear to me she loved her husband very much and she was dealing with four children who were still at home who had lost their father. And she, as I portrayed in the book, she would have to have family meetings to keep them up to date. And I think one of the more difficult scenes for me was when she had to tell the children that their father had been kidnapped. You know, there's a scene in there. I won't say what it is, but, you know, I have information from one of the children that that's really, you know, what happened. So even in a closed setting like that, where you may think I did, wasn't privy to that kind of information, I was. But anyway, she really went through a lot and it took its toll on her, unfortunately, but she stayed strong. You know, if you think about having to sit by a telephone and wait for the call from a kidnapper 24 hours a day, she couldn't leave home. She did visit her children who were staying at their grandparents for a while, but she had to sit by the phone. And as you read in the book, there were prank calls. There were extortionists calling, pretending to be the real kidnapper. And she had to take those calls and then, you know, find out that they weren't the real kidnapper. And so that was a very cruel part of what she had to go through. And then, you know, with the discovery of her husband's remains and the trial and having to go in and testify with her husband's killer sitting directly in front of her took a lot of strength. So I admire her and I wanted the reader to come away with, you know, how cruel this entire matter was to, for her and what she had to deal with. And as you'll read in the book, the ultimate toll it took on her life. Many tragedies, but one of the tragic parts of it is that Corbett doesn't set out to murder Ad Gores. He sets out to kidnap him. This is not a crime of passion. It's not one of these disgruntled employee or one of these union members or leaders that they suspect initially when he goes missing. It really, for him too, is a business transaction. It's a very dark one, much darker than Adolf Gores Jr. refers to it as, the father of the victim, and yet it goes wrong. You ask in Death of an Heir, in your author's note, how someone supposedly so intelligent as Corbett could have made so many mistakes, could have had such a terrible series of thoughts and, and actions that lead to his ultimate capture. Do you think there's any way that his plan could have succeeded as he laid it out? Or what changes could he have made in it for him to get this kidnapping, knowing that the Corps were willing to pay the ransom? How could he have made it work, do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, Kidnapping has always been a tough crime to succeed at, especially Today, it's impossible pretty much in the U.S. to do this type of kidnapping with all the surveillance cameras and the drones and the mobile trackers. But back in 1960, they didn't have that. So there's still the percentages were still good. But as you say, it didn't work. And even if he had been successful at taking ad cores, 
from what I've determined, his plan was to take Adkors out into the woods, into the mountains, and camp out for a few days while, you know, he dropped off the ransom note and recovered the money, and then I assume he would have let them know where Adkors were located. But even that, even if he had been successful in taking him, I'm not sure he would have successfully exchanged the money because the FBI and the state law enforcement and the local law enforcement and even the military was involved. And they were searching every gully, every mountain pass, every cabin, every every camping site, uh, grocery stores, anything that was out there in that entire area, they were searching. And they had helicopters, planes. So I feel that it would have been difficult for him to hide cores out for a few days without being detected. But even if he had, anytime you exchange a person for money, that's a really difficult thing to achieve. So I'm not sure he could have been successful even if he hadn't made the blunders that he made. Odds are certainly against him. But in his mind, anyway, he believed uh, he could do it. He had a real high opinion of himself. Yeah, so we'll never know if he could have pulled it off. But as I say, I think the odds were against him. He had a real high opinion of himself. So when somebody's like that, they tend to think everybody else is dim-witted, especially since he has those dead eyes and that lack of empathy for anybody else. So he thinks he can just put it over, and he doesn't doesn't really seem to think that anyone else is going to react. He doesn't think Adkors is going to react the way he does. But almost from that exact moment where he stops to help him, things go wrong. One of the things, too, that maybe people don't make a mental connection to, but here's a guy that's a millionaire on his way to his company that almost runs Colorado, that's known in, in every corner of the West, and he stops to help a man who's apparently stranded on the side of the road. And so I thought from that very first action that he takes that's doomed to cost him his life, you see he's, he's acting as the good Samaritan there. He's going to go help somebody. A lot of people would just keep going and maybe let somebody know in town that that guy is, is sitting there waiting with his car, and yet he gets out to help, and by getting out to help, it costs him his life. That's true. It's certainly the perfect example of no good deed goes unpunished. Yeah. I was trying not to say, well, what do we learn from this? Never help. <laughs> no, no. You, don't, <laughs> you don't want to feel that way. No, yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You got to be, be careful, I guess. What can you do? At least now we have cell phones. You can call if you see somebody stranded. You never know. There's scams that people run. But if you're not of that mind that somebody like Corbett is, you, you don't think of that. You just you see yourself in that person stranded. And that's how Ad Coors was. And he did unto others. He'd hope somebody would stop and help him. And unfortunately, that's part of the tragedy here, the overall tragedy of death of an heir. Yeah, you know, I think that's certainly our mindset today. We're very cautious. But this was, you know, almost 60 years ago. And it was out in Colorado out in the country, away from Denver, and, you know, neighbor helped neighbor, rancher helped rancher. He had more of that mentality that here's somebody in trouble. He certainly did not think what happened would happen, which, by the way, I have always wondered about that. If I'm at Coors, did I ever think that I was in jeopardy, or did that just seemed like an impossibility, and I just went on my day. I never know. But I think from what I was able to find that the brothers, even though the father was worried about kidnapping and prohibition and all other types of things, 
they weren't so. They viewed themselves living in the modern age, and that was just something like in the old days, on, like I say, on the Late Late Show. Maybe it was a small form of rebellion against their father who ran a tight ship, the, the whole family structure so tight that they figured, well, we can we can dismiss this. But unfortunately, he turned out to be right about his fears. Exactly. Well, Philip Jett, you've left us a great portrait here of Ad Kors. He's somebody that we can really get to feel for and, and remember. Somebody who's murdered tragically always deserves to be remembered. I want to thank you for sharing Death of an Air with us today and for taking us inside Colorado's most notorious murder. I hope people don't just Google the fate ah. here and deny themselves a great read. This is a, an adventure you want to take and you get so much more than you will from anything that's online. Enjoy that read. I hope people will want to pick up the book and go on that ride with you. It's a story of a really iconic American family and of a man who was would stop for you on the side of the road if you were stuck. So I want to thank you again for joining me, and I wish you the best of luck with Death of an Air. Well, thank you very much, Dean. It's been a pleasure, and I've enjoyed our discussion. And I do hope that people will go out and give this book a chance. I think you won't be disappointed. <laughs> I agree with that. Again, the book is Death of an Air. Adolf Kors III and the murder that rocked an American brewing dynasty. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take it Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Philip Jett for joining us and for letting us ride along with the Bloodhounds on this massive manhunt. Find him online at philipjett.com or at philipjett on Twitter. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this true crime installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today. And have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.